This is the Coogee Base Special, a crisis management podcast brought to you by Trevor Shea Pivot. My name is Garth Callender, and each episode I'm going to take you on a journey to explore crises from Australia and around the globe. We're going to unpack them a little to understand what triggered them, what the impact has been, not just for the organisation, but often the industry sector and beyond. And most importantly, we're going to look at what lessons we can learn from them. We've previously avoided current or emerging incidents. Firstly, because there are so many historic crises for us to draw lessons from. But also because previous incidents that have reached their natural conclusions can be reviewed in their entirety. Nevertheless, Marty Harper and I have been discussing the recent crisis to hit the royal family and we thought it was worthy of some analysis. As Prince Andrew is accused of, at best, keeping some bad company and making some terrible decisions. And at worst, he may have committed some extremely serious offences. What he is guilty of is a terribly managed PR incident that has resulted in a full-scale crisis for the royal family and has resulted in Andrew being dropped by organisations he is patron of and he has now been stood down from his royal duties. We don't want to sound like royal commentators, but we have found this fascinating from a crisis management perspective. And we have found that there are some interesting comparisons that can be made between this royal incident and the planned topic for the podcast. An incident from the early 1990s when Pepsi took an aggressive response when a series of product tampering and then copycat incidents occurred. We hope you enjoy this episode. So the third child of the Queen. Um, Was a bit naughty. Yeah, the media, they've got so much dirt that they can just churn out just because they spend so much time. You know, the paparazzi have got so much. So there's some good stuff. There was one um, saying that I think it was Prince Charles said that he claimed that Andrew, Prince Andrew, insisted that even his close friends call him sir. (laughs) 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 Um, And that the um, and this this sounds pretty pompous in its in itself, but you'd never know how he was going to greet the servant in the morning, bringing him his cup of tea, whether it was going to be good morning or f off, (laughs) (laughs) depending on his mood. Yeah. And what was the other? Oh, and even the Queen saying that he was not always a ray of sunshine. Yeah. Well, he's still angry after the toe sucking. <laughs> hey, that's exactly right. Um, you know, that was his job for a long time. And uh, nobody know. likes to hand over the, ro- the role to another man. Well, apparently he was a bit too pompous in that as well. Well, maybe, that, maybe that's what was going on. He'd, um, he decided that he was above toe sucking, so he'd hired somebody else for the job. And then, really, this is just a case of that habit getting a runaway with him. You know, it's a uh, a short, slippery slope to pedophilia. And now we've opened the podcast. Yeah. But what a fall from grace. He's got a great military background. You know, at 2022, he was flying Sea Kings in the Falklands War as a helicopter decoy target trying to divert Exocet missiles from hitting British ships. Like... He's a, he was a national hero, and he, you know, in a lot of circles, he still is a national hero. Um, mm. And he went on to spend he spent over two decades in the Royal Navy, and they do talk about him, you know, topping his pilot course and his like Top Gun helicopter pilot in the the Navy. Yeah. Um, well, I suppose from the public's perspective, they're wonderful achievements. But from I mean, it's a it's a fickle public, and bashing the Royals is a national pastime. 
or at least discussing and examining the Royals as a national pastime. And that, this is something where I think he's not been cognizant of in his decision to go to TV, I think. And, and I've also noticed that there is a lot of stuff going on in the US who love talking about the Royals and don't have any attachments or any loyalty to them whatsoever. You know, there's no yeah. there's no sort of monarchist movement in the US. They, have, they don't have any attachment, any uh, yeah. um, allegiance to them. So they can say what they like. And I've just been listening to a few videos of just groups of Americans just character assassinating him. Mm. And honestly, after that interview that he gave, probably rightfully so, that was that was pretty bad. It was a bad decision. Well, a bad decision to go in, but just then also just I don't know what strategy he would have been applying. I mean, I mean, who knows what the, the, the investigations will reveal, but he hasn't shown compassion. He hasn't chosen his words well. I think the big one was uh, saying that Epstein's, uh, Epstein's behavior was unbecoming. Unbecoming. And the, and the, and the interviewer yeah. calls him on it. Like she, yeah. she, she screws her face up and says, unbecoming? He was a sex offender. And he was like, oh, yes, I was just trying to be polite. Blah, 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 blah. From that crisis management perspective, it's just so much he did wrong. You know, I can see, he, I think he had in his head that he, he was going to do the, um, the Andrew McKenzie thing, like the BHP CEO who during the, um, the dam collapse at Samarco flew straight to mm. the site. And he was the guy on the ground. He was the one apologising, being transparent, being humble, and that's probably, you know, that's a corporate example. There's probably better examples from, from you know, personalities like, um, like royalty. But uh, he just so badly blew it. And, and I think, you know, now there's that talk going around that one of the royal PR people working for Andrew resigned prior to the interview because he quite obviously thought it was a bad idea, which proved to be yeah. dead right. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's, I mean, big differences between the Samarco sort of issue where people have died. Um, you've got a CEO in a leadership position. The optics here are very different. You've got, yeah. you've got the Royals, which, you know, there are, there are large swathes of even the British population that question whether or not they're relevant at all. And he's up there defending yeah. himself, just saying very silly things, but it's only in defensive him as an individual, not, not for any sort of higher purpose. Yeah, it just makes the whole thing, you know, pretty unpalatable from a public's perspective. And and from his role, a role where he's supposed to be above any sort of scrutiny and really his fundamental moral leadership of the country, he should be personifying. But it was kind of like there was just some dirty stuff in that interview. I thought the, um, the bit about uh, Victoria Roberts made yeah. accusations, quite a few, in fact, that Epstein had, had directed her to have sex with him when she was 17 years old and things like that. She'd said that, you know, they danced together and he'd been sweating profusely. And for Prince Andrew, it was kind of like a gotcha moment. Ha ha, I've got you. I, I don't sweat because of a, a medical issue I've had since the Falklands War. He wasn't apologetic. He didn't talk about yeah. victims. He didn't, you know, this is a pretty murky situation. We've got, we've got a guy who's a, a sex offender and pedophile committed suicide in prison. Who, who knows? A bit of conspiracy uh, you know, theories we throw uh, uh, Yeah, I'm not going to get into the conspiracy theories, but, he, but you know, there's a lot of stuff going on here. Prince Andrew is intimately linked with this guy on numerous occasions and quite obviously spent a lot of time 
at his residence, was a recipient of his hospitality on numerous occasions. He went and into went that interview. To him after the, yeah, and went to speak to him after the, after the charges. So I went to speak to him after the charges, and I was listening to one of them today, and I know that they're, they're probably dragging all this sort of stuff out, and, I, and I, I don't know what truth it was, but that time he went to speak to him after the charges, he stayed with him for four days, including attending a party that he had. And what was his reason for that? It was a convenient place to stay. It was a convenient place to stay. He yep. needed an Airbnb at the time. You know, That's was... right. I, I didn't have any other sex pests that I knew that I could stay with, so I... <laughs> Oh, it's horrible to be it's horrible to be laughing about this sort of situation, but there is there is something just so ridiculous about this decision that and and yeah, the the sweating claim, the convenience, just the the lack of situational awareness from his perspective, actually it's ludicrous. This, this would be an interesting discussion to have about the crisis management from the royal family perspective, yeah. not the Epstein perspective. They've cordoned this issue quite uh, well in terms of their decisive movement to stand him down. You're dead right. And I, I've touched on some of the royal stuff before just in some of the blogs that I've done. And sometimes I was a bit a bit curious about how that must all work in the royal family because they're, they're, like I said before, they're obviously constantly under scrutiny. They've constantly got paparazzi. Just, you know, you can just see in the tabloids, if there's no news, they, they just make up news or they take some picture of one of them having put on a few kilos and, oh, somebody's pregnant or, you know, somebody's on antidepressants or whatever. So there must be a constant process of reviewing what's being said about them. I'm guessing that. But I also think on the other side, even the reaction, you know, they made a movie about it, you know, when when Diana died and the Queen's very slow response, you know, the fact she didn't go public about that for a very long time. I think it was nearly yeah. two weeks before she said anything to the public about it. I'd love to know what sort of process does go on there. I was interested to see that Prince Andrew did have some PR people working for them. And I think it's interesting that they talk about you know public relations. Is that crisis management or is it just comms? Do they just monitor stories and then release their own media releases? Or is there a, a more deliberate, more comprehensive risk and crisis process that happens behind all of this. I don't know. I'm- It'd be interesting to know. I mean, they, they've de- as you say, they've been through so many experiences where they've, they've had to demonstrate apologetics to, to the public. I mean, how many companies do you think actually delineate those two, whether or not they actually say, okay, we need a uh, crisis management function and we need a PR function? I, I would probably say in many companies that would be one and the same. Yeah, and, I, and and often I think people just think about the PR function. They say, okay, well, this has happened. What story do we need to tell? Whereas a real, a real crisis management function is, okay, how do we fix the problem or how do we minimise the impact of this problem on the organisation and our people and our operations? And part of that is, and what story do we tell? And the best yeah. thing would be, the story we're telling is how we're fixing this. I, I, I always come back to Ardent Leisure and Dreamworld, the fatalities yeah. there. Their PR wasn't good anyway, but what mm. their PR did was say, we're doing this, this, and this, and that actually wasn't backed up by the actions of the company that was happening yeah. behind it, which cr- created uh, exponentially more issues for them. Yes. Because they looked look shifty. Mm. 
shifty and that's or, a, or, or incompetent, one of the two, or both. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. It's it's just the tip of the iceberg. If there's not a holistic process where it comes from a an understanding of, I suppose, you know, what the company stands for, its values, and that shines through when things are good and also when things are bad, then I think the public the public these days will find that out. If there are significant losers from a crisis, it will get found out. And you would want to, under scrutiny, look like you're at least intending to be doing the right thing. This incident with um, Prince Andrew has a significant flow-on effect. You know, this isn't this isn't just the royal family. So that we're seeing now that corporate sponsors from not not for profits, which Prince Andrew is associated with, the patron ambassador, spokesperson, are now withdrawing that funding. A big telecom company and one of the universities where he serves as chancellor uh, have now distanced themselves completely from him, as well as the functioning of the royal family in their sort of royal duties, which he has now stepped down from. I think anyone with a British accent in the US can claim to be a uh, a royal commentator, but I did see one royal commentator say it wouldn't have been Prince Andrew sticking his hand up going, I'm going to step down. He would have been pushed. Well, yeah, I mean, the, what I've sort of read from that is that it seems like Prince Charles has been heavily involved in that mm. process. Um, which, is, which is an interesting flip side of this because that could be a positive that comes out of it. He's, you know, in a lot of circles, people look at him and go, hey, that's the future king. Yeah. Whereas maybe he's stepping into a real leadership role here with this sort of stuff. Um, mm. This is an opportunity for him to show that. Now I'm starting Absolutely. to sound like a royal commentator. Anyway, how did this <laughs> podcast become new idea? So we were supposed to be talking about um, <laughs> about Pepsi, but this one sort of. And I've always kind of tried to avoid current issues, basically because by the time you release it, you're obsolete anyway, or your your information is a bit old. There's been something new which comes out. But this was such an interesting one, and um, it is. I think uh, it deserves. I think it deserves an episode in itself. And probably, and so, you're probably right. Yeah, maybe after, maybe after the fact, after the dust has settled. It's just so murky. He's acted so pompous, and the international media are just ripping shreds off him because of it. And it's had that flow-on effect across other industry sectors. I'm intrigued. Probably the the best thing he could do at this stage is just be quiet, have a sabbatical. At the end of the day, he's he's not the hard hitter for the royal duties. Probably he just best lay low and let this pass. From what I understand, he has diplomatic immunity from any kind of prosecution. So I, I would be surprised if the US come after him for anything to do with Epstein. I think you're absolutely right. He sort of just needs to, yeah, be out of the public light. And certainly um, I, I don't think we'll be seeing him give any interviews in the near future. No, and I don't want to sound I don't want to sound callous there. You know, at the end of the day, there's every likelihood he has committed some quite serious offences there. But I don't think prosecution will ever come out of this. What do you think would have happened had he not done this interview? And I, I note your point that he is probably being directed to do this at some point. But what, what do you think would have happened had they had they just not done anything? You know, I'm not. I'm not all over the facts here, but as far as I can see, it's it's an accusation made by Virginia Roberts that as a 17 year old, they'd had relations and it was forced. She was forced into it. Had relations. What am I? Um, <laughs> she, yeah, um, she'd been forced to have sex with Prince Andrew. There is something else that's come out that you know a former lap dancer alleged that the Duke blew raspberries on her breasts um, at a party hosted by Epstein. 
there's nothing illegal about that. That's unbecoming. That's unbecoming. But you know, yeah. I've had people blow roses on my breasts. It's just we're, we're all right. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it's definitely unbecoming as a prince. But you know, unless you've heard any more, we've we've really got allegations from one person here, and I, I'm not absolving him of any responsibility for what he's for what he's done in any way. But uh, people have. You know, let's go back to Michael Jackson. You know, he, yeah. So many more accusations about pedophilia and him grooming um, dozens of young people. Yet he somehow kept a very strong fan base and somehow stayed away from that. Um, I don't know. Was he was he ever pros- successfully prosecuted with that? Not. No, I don't think so. Not while. I, yeah, he he was exonerated in the trial and then there's been the recent documentaries that have come out. So there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a reopening of that story um, after his death. Yeah. But, but I think he's a bit different because there is a, you know, potentially the, sorry. And I, I mean that in the sense of he as an individual and a pop institution uh, that's fervently loved by his fans uh, has a different set of requirements and di- different set of pressures than the royal family, where you do have mixed, you know, mixed feelings about their purpose. You've yeah. got, um, you know, you've just got a different sort of lineage of history um, mm. that's there, you know, and potentially, you know, because of past experience, their appetite for that kind of uh, controversy is a little bit is a little bit lower. Um, but I mean, there was a lot of, you know, it was a it was a story that was building building mass and maybe that is something that prince charles has considered considering that he is the one that's going to be you know take you know taking the royals into the into the you know into the future yeah and and so uh, so to answer your question i think at the end of the day uh if he had if he had conducted an interview where he was humble and apologetic and honest um uh i think the end result would have looked very different to the fact that he came on, looked pompous, you know, was kind of engaging in that denial and counter-accusation piece. Uh, yeah. And it looks he, like he's got something to hide. Yeah, and he did not win any empathy from anyone. Uh, in fact, the opposite. I think he turned a lot of people against him. Um, I think it was a it was hence, a universal failure. Completely, completely. And and if I'd been that PR guy, I would have stepped down too. But why don't we why don't we talk about Pepsi because it's interesting yes. because it's because uh, you know this is from 1993 so this is a long time ago um, mm. this is uh, this is before social media yeah sure you know there was there was even newspapers and things like that but the media cycle wasn't anywhere near as fast as as what we're doing you know if Prince Andrew said something to the media now we'd have access to it in two minutes yeah. um, whereas th- these are things which happened in a very short period of time. But definitely didn't didn't end up in people's conscious until it was on TV and they happened to catch it, or it turned up on the, the the daily newspaper. And it's interesting because these guys got it right. They took the offensive, which I think Prince Andrew kind of wanted to do. Yeah. But Pep- Pepsi got it right when they did this because it was deliberate. It was well thought out. It was you know they obviously drew in their subject matter experts and they knew exactly what they were talking about. I'd love to think they had a really detailed 
risk management process behind their decision to do this. So, yeah. So the background was uh, 10th of June, 1993, an elderly couple in Washington State, US, claimed to have found a syringe uh, inside a can of Diet Pepsi. Their lawyer called the press and the health officials and they notified the police. And th- that was the start of it. So do you drink much Pepsi, Marty? I'm a Coke Zero man. Okay. How about syringes? You use syringes much? I like uh, off air. I'll tell you. No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> See, yeah, I, I, I didn't know how not to make that sound dodgy. <laughs> um, I don't. I've known you for a long time. I would have been surprised if you're like, yeah, yep, yeah. Can't totally. get enough of uh, totally. intravenous, especially um, those diet syringes. Yeah. So I'm the same. So you and I probably aren't experts on either Pepsi or syringes. But I would but, say instinctively, you would ask the question. And we know where this story goes, but you would say, my first question would be, how does a syringe get into a can of Diet Pepsi? Yeah. And I think that's the, that is the question which the executives at at Pepsi asked and couldn't come up with a decent answer for. Um, Like, not a decent answer. They couldn't come up with a reasonable answer, except that it would have had to have got in there after somebody had opened that can of Pepsi, which meant it wasn't Pepsi's fault. Yes. Yeah. So a second case was reported by a woman just 16 kilometres away just the next day. So t- within 24 hours, there was a second case. That second case triggered the, the US uh, FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, to put out a localised warning. There was no recall as there was no injuries or, or any indication that those syringes could contain anything harmful. Um, so they went, that's a bit icky. That's not something you'd want to get, but... At worst, that would be a minor needle stick injury. It's highly unlikely there'd be anything in the syringe that's going to hurt you. And that's a gutsy call, though. Yeah. Well, they know it's in Pepsi. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so you know those stories about cleaning ten cent coins in Coke or whatever. You leave a tooth yeah. in in Coke and it disappears. I'm assuming they're talking about the needle of the syringe. But um, if there was a syringe with infected blood or remnants of heroin or something like that. Surely the acidic nature of the Pepsi would destroy it. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just surmising. Perhaps that's. Yeah. Then again, maybe they brought in some experts and said, "What, do you, what are the chances?" And they went, "Probably yeah. very." And, and probably going back to that initial point was they couldn't, couldn't see any way that during their manufacturing process that would have happened. Now that doesn't stop them getting into trouble from that crisis management perspective. So if this yeah. was happening all over the place, regardless of how the syringe got in there, Pepsi could still find themselves in trouble in regards to just reputational damage, loss of sales, overall value of the organisation, things like that. The share price could drop. And it snowballed. So within within days, there were multiple reports springing up from media outlets around the US. And by the end of the week, that just seven days, there were over 50 claims of items being discovered in Pepsi beverage containers. And this is pretty gross. This is everything from syringes, pins, sewing needles, a bullet, a crack vial, and my favourite, a blob of mysterious brown sludge. Mm. When you're selling a product in a can which nobody can see into, the last thing you want is people thinking, I, ha- I don't want to get through halfway through this can and and ingest something out of it, which I wasn't yeah. expecting. What, whatever it was, any of those things, that's pretty gross. So, so reputational damage was a real possibility here. Mm. 
they did something which I think is is rare, but proved to be highly effective. Not rare in the fact that they pulled together a crisis management team, about 12 executives, and they came up with a plan, which was number one, they were going to produce a news video. So I assume it was, this is 1993, so I assume it was a VCR or a beta or something, um, yeah, yeah. which they released to the, to the press, showing the mechanics of the process of how cans go through their production line and basically showing that it was impossible for foreign objects to be in cans during the production process. Um, I, I've had a look on YouTube, and there's actually still quite a lot of those videos around. You know, yeah, I had a look at cu- a couple of them. There was one that, would, like, they produced something like uh, what was it, fifty thousand cans every couple of hours or something. It's crazy. It was, yeah. yeah, yeah, just the speed at which that operation works. So they also had their their company president. So I assume that's a company in in Australia that would be their chairman, but he at the, the national re- media reinforcing that message. So went on the offensive saying, we've gone through every can line, every plant, all the records, and the evidence points to those that syringe going into the can after it was opened. So, yeah. hey, I can hear that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's got a bit of a crisis management situation going on in his nappy. In his shorts. So, so yeah, they went on the offensive. They... They subtly put the blame back on these people who were claiming to have found the syringes in there. Danger, dangerous move. I mean, I think you know if this example happened today with social media, mm. I wonder if it would be as effective. Um, I think you would still. I think you would still see a recall occur just on the optics of it. They their first move was to have a look at their own internal processes. And to ask the question, did this happen? And once they were satisfied that their internal process and the integrity of those processes were correct, then they they knew what they were dealing with or they had a pretty good idea of what they were dealing with. And then so therefore the strategy is is validated at that point, um, in that point in time, given you know the media cycle and what they would be able to sort of do. In this day and age, Social media, you've got enough people popping up on Instagram and images of you'd be seeing images of the brown sludge and the syringe. Um, you've got to combat everything, regardless of whether or not the claims are true. Because mm. at the at the the initial point, it doesn't matter whether or not the claims are true. People think they're true. Yeah, exactly. And it would spread internationally, seemingly instantaneously with social media. Yeah where it wasn't the case here, and they had probably a bit of time, but one of the things they did in here, which was brilliant, was that they got the Food and Drug Administration Commissioner on board, um, and they got him to go that step further than they could ever go, and they got him to explicitly state that he believed the incidents were hoaxes, which suddenly they have a government organisation taking that step that they'd taken, which was start putting that back on the people that found the syringes. And this guy has said unequivocally that he believes that these are these are incidents of hoaxes. And within within a week of that, the FDA had announced their first arrest on charges of filing a false report, which is a in the US is a federal offense, punishable for five years in prison and up to a $250,000 fine. So it's it's nothing to be sneezed at. And I'm not sure what the, um, e- e- even if these were successfully prosecuted, but the fact that they'd made arrests 
were you know very much in favour of of Pepsi. They also got some surveillance footage of a supermarket in Colorado showing a woman shopper inserting a syringe into a can of Diet Pepsi. So that's you know that's that aha moment. The hoax is approved right. We've got video evidence. Yeah, okay, there's 50 instances here, but we've said right from the start that it doesn't happen in our factories. Here is the evidence that it doesn't happen in our factories. So they, they sent copies of these these videos to TV stations around the country with, with a specifically targeted media release to accompany it. Sorry, there was, like, having a look at this, this is 1993. You've got a pretty big battle still occurring between Coke and Pepsi. In, in the early 90s, there's a lot to lose for Pepsi yeah. if they if they sort of just bowed down. And so I think there's a lot of a lot of stuff that's informing their their decision to go and just saturate the media as much as possible. Maybe that's why they were good at this, because they they were having that so much market competition with Coke and they'd they'd all been through that sort of oh, I think they'd been through that new Coke time where they were trying to outdo each other on the new products so maybe they were really in tune with being able to act quickly and this is you know market that's market competition we're talking about this is potential product tampering incidents but still the thinking is somewhat the same they need to they need to understand the facts understand what's occurring they need to make some assessments and some assumptions about what's going to happen here they they need to do their scenario planning okay this is this is the likely thing that's going to come out of this. This is the worst thing that could happen out of this. And then set those strategic goals. What what do they need to do to get themselves out of this um, to avoid those that most likely and the and the worst thing from occurring? Um, yeah. And they did they did their the action plan they developed in this case was the likelihood was that these are hoaxes and we should go after the hoaxes and that's how we will maintain our reputation, our market share. And they. They did. At the end of the day, they, they only lost 2% market share, which they regained within a month. They put together an aggressive campaign. You know, the 1993, they were faxing daily updates of the situation <laughs> across, across their 600 offices and distribution centres and their supply chain, so out even outside Pepsi, keeping their supply chain on, on board and in the fold in, in regard to the information. The company president called a press conference insisting that the notion of a nationwide tampering of Pepsi products was unfounded and that the string of incidents were clearly a series of copycat hoaxes, which from everything I've seen is they, they turned out to be. There's no evidence whatsoever since this event that anything came from a factory and everything has just been this bizarre series of copycat hoaxes. I don't, I don't know how you hear about a syringe being in a can of Pepsi and think, oh, I've got a great idea. I'll, I'll claim the same. Because they, nat- they were nationwide weren't they? Yeah. There was about 50, I don't know, people see a payday, they see it in the news at some point. You can understand that in the age of social media In uh, it's pretty mm. impressive in 1993. And let, let's face it, you know, there are arseholes out there that do these sorts. I was listening to a true crime podcast this morning, which is just horrific, and a kid went missing, and then a week later, somebody came forward and issuing ransom demands. And it turned out the person issuing ransom demands had nothing to do with the kidnapping. They just were taking advantage of that situation and thought they might be able to get some money out of it. Like, they're just, there are horrible people out there. Um, I'm not saying that people that put syringes in cans of Pepsi are are anywhere near that bad, but, you know, they're They're not nice. They're not nice. And they see advantage in 
you know, ruining other people's welfare and well-being, which, you know, again, had the real potential here. If they'd had nationwide recall, if they'd, um, you know, had to destroy millions of dollars worth of stock, which is potential what might happen in that, if they'd had to rebuild the way their supply chain works or their machines for the, uh, you know, the canning of drinks, things like that, could cost the company millions of dollars and it could be enough to push the company over the edge into insolvency and people could lose their jobs, investors could lose money, ruins people's lives just because they wanted to make a quick buck out of a... uh, out of a hoax product tampering incident. So it concluded. I, th- I like the conclusion. It kind of, it's a bit tongue-in-cheek and it's a bit, it's clever. They released a headline after, you know, because it had been quite public. They'd, they'd gone public themselves in a big way. They'd gone more public yeah. than anyone else had about this. So they released a headline um, in national media saying, Pepsi is pleased to announce nothing. Yes, nice. So basically saying we had nothing to do with this. Um, so, I, yeah, I thought that was that was clever. The explanation that sort of went went along with it, as, Pep, as, as America knows, those stories about Diet Pepsi were a hoax. Hundreds of investigators have found no evidence to support a single claim. Concluded saying uh, millions of you have stood by. So I love it, you know, bringing, bringing the people in, you know, we're, we're all part community. of the big team. Yeah. Absolutely. And that, that ran in USA Today, New York Times, and dozens of other major newspapers for the following week um, until it was over. And like I said, 2% loss in sales, which they picked up again within a month. So, yeah, I really like the Pepsi one just because it's, it's something different. It's very much a different approach. They acted in a, in a well-considered way. You know, I, I, I think they did anyway. There are people that probably argue, no, it was bold and it was rash and it could have backfired on them. But my gut feeling is just looking at it, particularly the way they ran the whole thing, getting the FDA involved, the deliberate media stuff, I, I think that was well considered and well thought out. And I do think that they that risk process behind it all, um, thinking about the likelihood and the consequence of their actions and e- even, you know, they look at the, the likelihood is that a syringe somehow got into a can during the manufacturing process, which they deemed highly unlikely, if not impossible. So the likelihood level on that risk matrix was right down the bottom. The consequence, well, the consequence reputationally might have been somewhere up there. You know, they weren't going to kill anyone. It was highly unlikely they were going to kill anyone. And the fact there was just all this range of stuff, you know, from bullets to crack vials to sludge, I think it's a reasonable assessment to make that there's no clear pattern in the in the things they're finding in these, yeah, in these cans. So nothing, nothing that systemically would end up in a can in an automated process. And the beauty of leveraging the FDA to get the yeah. effect they wanted, I think that's that's a sign of a of a really sharp executive or board, whoever whoever tied in the FDA there. I'd like to think it's the board. You'd have those those sage, well-connected figures sitting on the board who say, mm. well, I know the commissioner of the FDA. Let's go and talk to them and see what we can work out. And the end result would be something like the FDA stepping in as they did in this. Now, the um, key point that you mentioned there is that it was well-considered. I think I think it's very easy to have a look at this situation and go, I love the bold action. I love how they went on the offensive and like, you know, sort of stick it to the man a little bit. Um, But that's just the end point. That's the end point of it. 
they may have gone through the same well-considered process and come up with a completely different scenario saying, look, the, the, the optics of this are such that we need to actually be contrite in how we're, mm. we're dealing with it through their analysis and their discussions. And they didn't have a rogue CEO tweeting tweeting personal statements off there. Everything was along yeah. the, the company line. It, it, it's just a, a very different dynamic. And I think in the modern age, you can look at this, but there is a lot of different pressures. You're dealing with you're dealing with a media cycle where you don't necessarily have 24 hours to come up with a public statement. Uh, so I think that preparation is very, very important for what, you know, what may what may occur and what your risks are. I completely agree. And getting back to the Prince Andrew one, you know, he would have thought that he's being bold. He's on the front foot. He's getting out there. He's putting this whole thing to bed. And he, he just did a giant crap in a already bad bowl of ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> well tied to the title. It's <laughs> yeah. good. But that's the thing, yeah. isn't it? Sometimes, sometimes we look at case studies like this and we only view aspects of them. Had they taken a wrong step in this, had they come out with a statement saying it's just a syringe, that's not going to be, and had somebody made that statement to a reporter at the time, all of a sudden there's a thing of Pepsi doesn't care about, like there may have been nothing in the cans, but Pepsi also doesn't care if there is. Exactly. They could have really been caught out. And, you know, let's, what if a, a, a picture of a, of a child with a syringe sticking in their tongue from a drinking a... <laughs> can of Pepsi or something, just ho- something like that could just get this whole plan unstuck. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, and again, that's that's where social media comes into play these days. That is that risk was reduced of something like that coming up back in 1993 because the ability for people to communicate as as quickly and as broadly wasn't there. Well, back in the back in the day, all the advantage would be with Pepsi. As opposed to you know th- these disparate news outlets that would be stringing together these stories, Pepsi's got the money, it's got the reach, it's got the ability to be able to kind of control the narrative. Whereas these yeah. cases, that isn't the like you know a company can throw millions of dollars at a uh, you know at whatever they want at any issue that they want, but people are now their own publishers, and if there is a critical mass under the under a hashtag, then mm. that can it's a disproportionate effect. That's right, and it's a good point under a hashtag as well. You bring the everything that falls into that category together, where people can view it easily, and and the media can take it and build stories around. I see. I think you see that a lot with Prince Andrew. There's a lot of stories now which are just pulling together every little bit of stuff that I've gone through his entire history. There was, uh, I saw something about him being very critical of him. He spent 22 years in the Royal Navy, then came back as a UK Special Representative of International Trade and Investment. And there was a lot of, apparently, a lot of criticism around him, that, him in that role, which got dragged out from this. You know, his, uh, his first task was a post-September 11 trip to New York, criticised for attending a party on his stay. He was dubbed the, he was dubbed Air Miles Andy um, amid criticism of global, uh, of globe trotting. Um, accused of doing the um, Bronwyn Bishop thing of taking a helicopter out to a, I think it was a uh, a golf-related dinner at St Andrews um, Golf Club um, and held meetings with 
Muammar Gaddafi's son. Um, so all this sort of stuff they can just pull out really easily now um, to cast dispersions on people to... And and like you know individual accounts. There's the um the what is it the Downing Street where he, apparently the staffer uh, accuses him of using the N word. Uh, oh, right. You know, and, and so it's down to individual things like that where uh, yeah. it's so he's, he's open slather now. People will look to character assassinate him. So it doesn't. It, it's almost to the point where it almost doesn't matter what happens to him from a cross prosecution sense. He's he's effectively done. And and. People can believe it because his father makes those sorts of gaffes all the time. In fact, he's he has a reputation built around politically incorrect gaffes every chance yeah. he can possibly get, and then and then being a terrible driver. But yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. Have you got anything else to add? I reckon we've we probably cooked that one. You've got two seemingly di- different stories that um, have have attempted the same strategy and one very successfully. And uh, one less so. So I think this has been a pretty good episode, actually. Yeah, I think they've come together quite... They're decades apart, but I think they both they sit side by side quite nicely. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We find that often organisations don't fully grasp the risks and opportunities presented through an enterprise risk management process. Rather, these processes are seen as, as merely compliance and regulatory requirements rather than true business enablers. This can result in an underdeveloped risk management culture where risks aren't fully contextualised. Risk tolerances are either not set by the board or are not translated into operational outputs. And there can be a failure to identify and treat all enterprise risks. The result being that the organisation's leadership is ill-prepared for the realisation of these key strategic risks and they find themselves in crisis. If you have any feedback on this episode, or if you'd like to discuss any of these aspects with our team further, please get in touch with us, www.trebuchetpivot.com. We're always interested in feedback, and we're always interested to understand how we might be able to help your organization. Thanks very much.